Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the University of East Anglia, in collaboration with the Sainsbury Center for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Coordinator at the Center for Japanese Studies and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are in discussion with Dr. Rainer Dennison, Senior Lecturer in Film, Television and Media Studies. Rainer specializes in local and transnational studies of Asian media industries, particularly investigating aspects of popular cinema and television. Today, she kindly joins us to place Japanese animated television and film, popularly known as anime, into the broader world of arts. Hello, Reina. Thank you for joining us on the show today. How about you start off by telling us about your field and your research focus? Okay, so hi, everyone. Um, I did Japanese as my first degree and then film as my MA and PhD. And I have developed a specialism in Japanese cinema, uh, including, of course, animation, um, which is hugely popular in Japan. Um, It's, if you include video games, one of the most powerful industries in the world. Um, And it's a hugely important one for us to think about in terms of how animation works and its aesthetics and how... Japan is leading the way in these areas. So I mostly these days write about um, all things contemporary animation from Japan. Great. So um, I might, I'd like to ask how you got into academia in the first place then and why this mm-hmm. field in particular? So after doing my first degree in Japanese, I was thinking about what I was passionate about. And I had always loved films, always, Um, you know, since I was a child, of course. And I realized over the course of studying Japanese for my undergraduate degree that a lot of the things I had loved as a child had been Japanese in origin, but that origin had been hidden. And that really intrigued me when I was doing my degree. And Because I was so passionate about film, I I thought this would be an amazing thing to study further. And so I I continued. I did the MA in film studies at Nottingham and then moved on to do a PhD. And my PhD subject was on Hayao Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke. And I was really interested when I was doing that project in thinking about how Japanese films travel in Japanese culture, but also how they then travel out to the rest of the world. So the more I studied this, the more I became passionate about it, the more I started to think about how much there was going on under the surface of Japanese cinema that people outside of Japan and even sometimes inside of Japan don't seem to know about. So I wanted to turn that into a career and, 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 and communicate some of the things that are going on. Great. You said earlier that uh, you realized that some of the things you were passionate about as a child were had a hidden Japanese origin. Could you like clarify more on that? Like what kind of things? Oh, you're asking me to give away my age. Um, so most <laughs> of us growing up um, in, in whatever generation you're from will have had some kind of translated anime um, or translated Japanese 
adapted Japanese television shows or films that you grew up with that you didn't know were Japanese um, quite often. So for me, we're talking about things like um, Battle of the Planets, um, the original Voltron and things like that, which are now being remade as transnational American productions, some of them. So it's it's fascinating to see how everything old is new again at the moment. Mm -hmm. But I think most of us can tell a story similar to that. Most of us who love anime anyway can tell a story similar to that, whether you grew up with Pokemon trading cards or Yokai Watch. Um, everybody's got one of those stories where they encounter animation for the first time from Japan and often don't know that it is Japanese animation. Um, for me, it, it was about the style of it. I, I started to realize that there were shows that I liked when I was a child that looked and felt very different to things like Scooby-Doo or um he-man you know so there were there were these shows that were just different and unusual then they really stuck with me and when i started studying japanese um and japanese culture and society i started to realize that there was this whole history of exchange through television and through film between japan and the rest of the world that people at the time weren't really talking about very much and that's one of the reasons why I felt so drawn to the subject because I was rediscovering my own history of exchange with Japan at the same time that I was discovering a whole industrial history. And, and I thought that was just fascinating. Yeah, I think a lot of Japanese students can relate to that sort of revelation. Definitely. I hope so. <laughs> um, so how about we look into anime itself a bit? Because um, you start off by defining what is anime and telling us a bit about how it is made. <laughs> um, as I was saying before, um, I, I discovered anime um, first as a child and then rediscovered it as an adult. And of course, it changed hugely in between those two times. Um, so part of the problem is defining anime is like defining a river or a stream. The minute you try to pin it down, it moves on around you. So it's a really difficult thing to do. I think one of the important things to note is that anime is not the same as Japanese animation. Japanese animation includes all different kinds of animation. Um, stop motion puppetry, for example, and um, CGI work, as well as what we usually consider to be anime. So anime um, kind of emerges in the 1960s and 70s in Japan, and in its beginning times, it was usually made for television. And so these were television shows, television series, and they were made using uh, cell animation, which is using kind of um, plastic acetate or cells onto which you draw, just like classic Disney animation. Um, anime is different to classic Disney animation in that Disney animation is what's known as full animation. So full animation is usually done on ones or twos. Now, this is very technical, but what that means is every 24 um, frames, which relates to one second of animation, is a different image. So that's shooting on ones. If you have shooting on twos, that means you will have the same image twice, so 12 images every second. And the eye is 
fairly happy with that being a moving image and that's usually called full animation. Now, anime in its early days had to be made really, really, really cheaply. And so what they did was reduce the number of frames per second, which is why anime often has that kind of jerky, jumpy looking animation in its classic era. Of course, everything has now changed again and anime is now usually made on computers. Um, but the computers still mimic that traditional style of animation. So often what you get these days is animators will draw the images and then they get scanned into computers um, and, and re-rendered to look like the old style of cell animation. Interesting. So, so it still requires um, painters mm -hmm. and you know a, a high degree of um, art skill uh, in the production process. So I suppose this, this goes into the next question quite nicely of, um, is anime art? Yes, I think, I think you're right. I think whenever you have something being creatively produced, someone drawing, someone filming something, someone trying to create um, a story using aesthetic choices, then I think you are edging into the territory of art. But what anime is as an industry in Japan is a very commercial art form. So it's a popular art form and a very commercial one. And it's got close links with other industries in Japan, most particularly things like the manga or comic book industry. So yes, it's an art form. And I think it's worth noting that not all anime is the same. Something like, um, a Hayao Miyazaki movie from Studio Ghibli might be closer to full animation than, say, an Osamu Tezuka cartoon series from the 1960s, which might be aimed at a more television audience and it might be aimed at cutting costs. So it's maybe closer in style in some ways to the manga industry than it is to full animation. So you get, you get a, a spectrum of production. And it's worth noting that anime is itself a very diverse field. Um, some of it's made using very different technologies and some of it is made for very different purposes. So you get animators producing work that is intended for popular consumption, but you also get animators producing work that's intended for art galleries or for um, high art spaces like theatres. Um, so it's important to to recognize the diversity in anime and its productions, I think. Mm -hmm. I'd like to build on that a little bit, if I may, um, just to look at um, what kind of presence anime has in the uh, traditional spaces of arts, like galleries in uh, Japan and, and abroad. So some of the manga artists and animators in Japan are amongst Japan's most celebrated artists. Um, I've personally been to art exhibitions in the center of Tokyo at the Mori Art Museum, which is one of the, the biggest museums in Tokyo. And I've been to, to ex exhibitions there on One Piece, on um, Sailor Moon, on um, Attack on Titan. And, you know, these are hugely profit profitable franchises for anime and manga but they're also considered and treated as art forms and the artists behind them 
are considered as artists. Um, there was, for example, just a few years ago, an art exhibition um, about the backgrounds used in Studio Ghibli's films. So a special art gallery exhibition just for the backgrounds from Studio Ghibli's films. And I think things like that in should indicate to us how seriously anime and manga as industries are taken in Japan. And, you know, of course, we had just last year here in the UK, the manga exhibition at the British Museum, which um, some of our colleagues from UEA were, were involved with. And that, again, it featured anime around the edges of the exhibition as another associated art form. So if we if we consider anime itself as part of art, it's certainly also connected to other art forms from Japan and to high art spaces like galleries. So, yeah, yeah. And so you think that the exhibits at the British Museum, do you, think that, do you think that raised the profile of anime as more than just a commercial product overseas? I would certainly hope so. And I certainly think it's a, a translation of how anime and manga are treated in Japan. Um, so in Japan, those high art spaces are already recognizing regularly and routinely the importance of manga and anime to art in Japan. And I think something like the British Museum's manga exhibition just translates that for us here in the UK and shows us how seriously we can take these kinds of art forms. And they deserve it. They, these are incredibly skilled, incredibly beautiful images that we tend to treat not as art because they are popular. But it's worth noting that the Museum of Modern Art in uh, New York has been archiving Disney's work since I think the 1930s or 40s. So it's not like this should be news to us that animation can be art and can be treated as art. You know, it's a we have a long history of doing that in the West. I think the difference here is that this is a, a foreign art form that we are importing and so when we import manga or anime into the UK, we often just see the texts and not the contexts that those industries are producing around themselves in Japan. So something like the manga exhibition brings more of that context to us and more of that history to us. So we can see, I guess, better and clearer the, the real impact and the real importance of things like manga and anime. Mm. Let's see. Now, um, you've already mentioned the studio a few times, um, but before we talk about it, I'd like to just start off with uh, getting the pronunciation correct, because I've heard it pronounced Studio Ghibli and Studio mm -hmm. Ghibli a few times. What, what's the correct, correct pronunciation? So um, this is a funny story in some ways. Uh, so it's a mistake. Um, apparently, Hayao Miyazaki came up with the way of pronouncing this, and it was uh, in Japanese. Sutajo Jiburi. Um, so it's with a J-I in Japanese at the beginning of the second word. Um, but that was a mistake. He'd, um, he'd heard the word which comes uh, out of Italian and had I think he'd heard it said by somebody who got it wrong or there's some kind of mix up there. But by the time they'd kind of already, by the time they realized the mistake, they'd already announced the studio's name. So they've just stuck with it. Um, so Studio Ghibli um, is probably correct. Um, 
but Ghibli in Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. what is Studio Ghibli and uh, when did it come into being? So Studio Ghibli is a studio formed by a publishing house, Tokuma Shoten, and an animator, Hayao Miyazaki, and an animation director, Isao Takahata. Now, this all comes about because they made an animated film called Naushka of the Valley of the Wind that was hugely successful in Japan in the early 1980s. And there are many different versions to how Studio Ghibli came into being, but um, what the upshot of it was is Naushka was very successful, so they were looking to do something similar again and to make Castle in the Sky they decided to form their own studio in 1985. Now, the problem at the time was the studio where they had made Naushka had gone bankrupt, so they couldn't use that one again. And none of the other studios would take on such a huge project as a new Hayao Miyazaki film. So they had to find and form a new studio to create Castle in the Sky. I see. And so why has... Studio Ghibli, or at least um, Hayao Miyazaki, becomes so famous compared to these other Japanese animators. And um, could you tell us a bit about the major films and themes within them? Wow, okay, big question. <laughs> so <laughs> Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata uh, were trained at a company called Toei Animation, or Toei Doga. Um, and they trained in the 1960s, and they trained at this studio, which was doing basically Japan's closest version to full animation. And that's what they've continued to do after forming Studio Ghibli. So Ghibli was created to make films for Hayao Miyazaki, or to make Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata films, not to make television, not to do other things, but really to make films, which is quite unusual in Japan. Um, Normally, studios will do advertising, they'll do TV shows um, before they get famous. And then as they get famous, some of them start making films. By contrast, Studio Ghibli was always about Hayao Miyazaki movies. And there's a long and and kind of tortured history to how those films became international. Um, There were a few abortive attempts to sell Studio Ghibli films and and earlier films to the rest of the world, which ended up with things like um, Warriors of the Wind, a version of Naushka of the the Valley of the Wind, being um, chopped up and turned into Warriors of the Wind and turned into kind of an action movie rather than into the, rather than the epic that it actually was originally. So for years, we, we didn't see these movies very much outside of Japan. And then in the late 1990s, uh, Tokuma, the the publishing house that then owned Studio Ghibli, um, were approached by Buena Vista International, which is an arm of the Disney company, about having a production and distribution deal between the two companies. And that's how Princess Mononoke um, from 1997 became Hayao Miyazaki's first theatrically released film in the United States was was through that deal. Now, it's it's really hard to encapsulate 30 years of filmmaking in a in a few high points, but I'll give it a go. Um, So Castle in the Sky was a, a, a major fantasy film, and that was followed up quite quickly with a 
double release. So two films released at the same time, one by Hayao Miyazaki and the other by Isao Takahata. Those films famously in Japan were Grave of the Fireflies, which is a heartbreaking animation about two young children living in Kobe during the Second World War. And then this, on the flip side of that coin, they released at the very same time as a double bill, My Neighbor Totoro by Hayao Miyazaki, which is a, a kind of post-war fantasy about Japanese um, countryside living and, and nature and the gods that might inhabit the natural world in Japan. So there's really interesting things going on in that pairing, I think. But from those two, we start to see some of the major themes that would become the themes of Studio Ghibli. So on the one hand, you have Isao Takahata, who is very interested in realism and detail and produces um, a mixture of highly realist films, but also highly realist films with a touch of magical realism, a touch of fantasy. And you also have Hayao Miyazaki, who is um, very interested in questions of Japanese history and questions of um, fantasy and folklore and in childhood and, and the environment, of course. And both of these filmmakers are very interested in the environment. Um, I spent a lot of the day before yesterday during the bank holiday translating um, an article about Isao Takahata's little known two and a half hour plus documentary, live action documentary on uh, the waterways of Yanagawa. Um, and that's a fascinating departure for a director who otherwise worked in animation for the most part. Um, so we've got these themes that started to emerge, the environment, fantasy, childhood, but within I think Isao Takahata's work, we see some things that are a little bit different. We see an interest in realism in animation, but also a real interest in the technologies of animation and the ways one can aestheticize animation. So Takahata is very interested in um, animation as an art form per se, even though he's technically not an animator himself. Um, so they're, they're very different filmmakers. Um, there are also other filmmakers who worked at Ghibli for many years, including people like um, Hiromasa Yonobayashi um, and Yoshiyuki Momose, who now on and off work for Studio Ponok. And Momose is interesting because he's a CGI man. Um, Yonobayashi is interesting because he's another... Um, adapter of children's literature, um, very much like Miyazaki. So they're very much in the same vein. So there are these different directors working at Studio Ghibli across its 30 plus years of production. And each brings their own interests, of course. But within that, we have these, um, I, I guess, similarities, these production similarities, that interest in full animation, animation as an art form, um, animation's connections to fantasy and to the environment. I see. I mean, there's so many questions I could ask following on from that, but I think we're running a bit short in time. So <laughs> I'd like to broaden up the, uh, or to, I'd like to widen the conversation out a bit and to consider um, anime and uh, Studio Ghibli's place uh, in a global frame. 
Um, so for many people, Studio Ghibli is synonymous with Japanese cinema. Uh, do you believe that uh, Studio Ghibli and other anime films are in competition with live action Japanese films overseas? Um, I think that depends on what moments we're talking about. The, the films from Studio Ghibli tend to turn up at film festivals first in Europe and America. And when they do that, they are competing with live action films directly. That's pretty unusual. Normally, um, Japanese animated films go to a different circuit of film festivals that is specifically interested in animation. So um, most anime films will turn up at places like Annecy, the big international film festival for animation. So it's a little bit different. Um, Studio Ghibli's always seems to be a little bit different to everybody else. But in recent years, we've started to see their their kind of presence being replaced by other big filmmakers, um, probably most notably Makoto Shinkai, whose films are starting to appear in more and more big film festivals as well. Um, I think in terms of animation, one of the interesting things about the what is now known as that Disney Ghibli deal is that that's what really helped make Studio Ghibli a little bit different to others, um, winning the Oscar, for Spirited Away and becoming kind of a bigger competitor within the global marketplace really put Studio Ghibli on a map in a way other studios have struggled to achieve. Mm. Um, but there is a very long history of Japanese animation, um, anime films in particular, circulating widely around the world, either because fans push them into global marketplaces doing fan translations and adaptations, um, or because companies have you know, been investing in Japanese animation and are therefore pushing Japanese films into global spaces. And we, I think in this era of streaming, have seen a real sea change regarding these kinds of issues of distribution because it's so much easier now to see anime films or anime television shows legally online through streaming services like Netflix. And Netflix are now investing as distribution partners or as production partners in a lot of anime production, which is really exciting to see. Mm. So I think that's changing the landscape as well. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned just now that... Um, you have a, a huge fan movement for anime and this can manifest in so many different ways internationally with uh, animation conventions, uh, fan artists, translators, cosplayers and so on. Um, how would someone take this passion uh, for this aspect of Japanese culture and turn it into the basis for academic research? <laughs> well, read my work because that's kind of what I did. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's so many different, I think there's so many different routes into academia now. And I, I really think we've seen an enormous amount of change and opening up of academia to popular culture in recent years. There's now um, a UK based group looking at um, fan cultures, global fan cultures, for example, in fan studies. Um, so that itself is a field of study now. 
I think anime studies is just on the cusp of becoming a field or a subject area in its own right. Um, but we've seen it's taken a long time for things like animation studies and anime studies to develop. And it takes a groundswell. It takes those fans investing their time and their effort into research and into writing about animation to make the subject robust and to make the subject sustainable. And so if anyone is interested in anime, in cosplay, in um, anime crafting, um, you know, baking anime cakes, I think those things are things you can take seriously and should take seriously. These are people's passions and passion is always something we should take seriously. So, you know, all I would say to people is that if they if they want to help grow this field, if they want to if they're passionate and they want to write about anime for the rest of their lives, there is, you know, plenty of writing to be done and plenty of research to be done. You know, we're talking about an industry that produces thousands of hours every year of animation. And there's no way that the handful of us writing about it at the moment can cover everything. So I would I would welcome with open arms anyone who wants to invest their time in anime and in writing about anime. It's so rich and such a rewarding area because there's always more in the way of connections to find. There's always more in the way of growing and emerging fields and subfields to find. And a lot of that has to do with fans. A lot of it has to do with the fact that fans have, in moments where anime wasn't been dis being distributed to the West, have, have proselytized for it, have pushed for it to be here. And the way they support it by going to cinemas, watching things on Netflix, you know, those themselves are really important to the health of our access to anime in this country. And so anyone who's interested, you know, I, I'm very serious about this. Please get in touch. I would love to talk to you about anime. As you can tell, I like doing this sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's an inspiring quote. I don't if I ever heard one. Um, before we end, Rena, I'd like to just talk a bit about uh, a book that you're working on for Studio Ghibli. Yes, um, I am talking to you from my office and I'm currently surrounded by stacks of books and papers that I'm translating um, for an industrial history of Studio Ghibli. So there's been quite a few um, academic articles and a couple of books now looking at Studio Ghibli's films, but and they tend to focus on Hayao Miyazaki. So my idea was let's let's have a look at this studio, let's see how it talks about itself. And let's see how it's changed over the course of 30 years of production. So that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years is doing lots of translation and trying to think beyond maybe just the high points of Studio Ghibli to think about some of the things it does that people don't know about or to tell some of the stories that are lesser known. So this book is covering that initial foundation and formation of Studio Ghibli and how I, and by the way, I thought that was going to be a simple story to tell, and it's incredibly complicated. I found at least five different versions of how Studio Ghibli got formed. Um, and, and there are really interesting things to think about in terms of this history. I thought that the most famous thing about Miyazaki was the way he um, produces his 
his great active female heroines in his movies like Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke, you know, but actually he invested, you know, he put his money where his mouth is. They, he invested in the spaces for women in, stu- in the studio itself. Um, and he has done things like put a crash into Studio Ghibli for working families. You know, there, there are things he's done that are maybe actually more feminist than appear in his movies. So um, <laughs> there's all kinds of wonderful details coming out of the, the translation that before I started doing this, I didn't know. And I've been writing about the studio for over 10 years now. So I'm hoping people enjoy this because it's it's a different look at the industrial history of Studio Ghibli. It looks at not just Miyazaki, but also people who worked with him, the people who whose names maybe you don't know quite so well, um, but whose history is vital to understanding Hayao Miyazaki's success. Right. I'm, I'm sure you'll have no end of readers dying to get a look at that when it comes out. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Rain. It's been a wonderful interview. Thank you so much, Ollie. It's been absolutely my pleasure. And if anybody's interested in anime, do get in touch. You can find the links to Rainer's research projects as well as the contact information in the description below. If this episode has fired up your interest in Japanese arts, then check out our module on Japanese arts and cultural heritage in our new MA in Interdisciplinary Japanese Studies. Search uea.ac.uk forward slash cgs for more information. Join us next week where we will be in discussion with Dr. Nadine Wellems, lecturer in Japanese history at the University of East Anglia on political dissent in modern Japan. Thank you for listening.